guys, and welcome to the Moms and Murder Podcast, a true crime podcast featuring myself, Mandy, and my dear friend, Melissa. Hi, Melissa. Hi, Mandy. How are you? I'm doing well. How are you? Good. We have um, a big birthday this week in our house. My daughter turns 13 next weekend, a teenager. Oh, my goodness. Can you believe that? Just no, like from the time we've known each other, it's such a bizarre, it's like a, it's like a different person. Like It is she's wild <laughs> to think about. Yeah, I think she was, what was she, five or six whenever I first met you? I, I think like four and a half because she and my oh, son are four and a half years apart. Isn't that wild? Yeah, yeah. Oh my gosh, no, it's just, oh, it seems like just yesterday. It is crazy to think that she is going to be celebrating her 13th birthday. What a big milestone birthday. Um, I'm so excited for her. I know everybody loves turning 13. It's like yeah. very exciting. Well, I mean, it's not once you get older, you realize it wasn't, yeah, yeah. but it is at the time. So. It is. Yeah. <laughs> but I'm like, okay, what do you want to do? Let's do something. She's like, I just want to sleep all day. I'm like, oh my gosh, um, you're my child. Yeah. <laughs> so <laughs> I'm still trying to get something out of her to do, you know, something, but she's like, I really like, please don't do anything big for me. So I'm like, all right, I'm trying to like respect her wishes, but not be like, not do anything for her birthday, but like, let's find something in, in the middle. But it's fun. She did ask for no hugs that day. So that was like, I'm oh, like, she's why are you trying to yours. hurt me yeah. on your birthday? Yeah. <laughs> like you're definitely oh, how the turntables. Right? <laughs> so yeah, that was exciting to be like low key birthday, but like also excited. So we'll see how it goes. But yeah, 13. Can't believe it. And she's like so much taller than you, Mandy. I just realized now she's like 5'8". Oh, thank, thank you for bringing five, that eight. up. Yeah. <laughs> Like how? I, I just don't even, I'm just like, whenever I see her near people now, I'm like, she's taller than everyone. I mean, like in a good way, I like being taller than everyone, but it, it's funny. I'm like, well, you're almost taller than me. And now I feel a little competitive. I'm like, no, you're not going to, you're not going to grow up, you know, outgrow me. We can't do this. This can't be our relationship. I have to be taller than you, but we'll see what happens. Well, I'm jealous. She's I'm jealous of years. a 13 year old. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> As you should be. Yeah. Just kidding. <laughs> All right, so we will get into uh, the story for this week. Um, the first couple of episodes that we did this year were a little heavy and tragic. So this week, we're going to lighten things up a little bit with a different type of story. And it's the type where nobody dies. Yay. Yay. Except for everybody who died a little bit inside when $200 million worth of rare and even one-of-a-kind artwork was stolen from a prestigious Boston art museum. Now, we've talked about a couple of different heists on the podcast, but nothing quite like this one. This really isn't just any ordinary breaking and entering burglary situation. This is a crazy story about the greatest art heist in history, and it's still shrouded in mystery to this day. Where is Rembrandt's only painted seascape in existence now? It's out there somewhere, but my question to you is, would you even know it if you saw it? Would you know any famous work of art if you saw it? Now, of course, there will be people who could honestly say yes, that they would know famous artwork, but I would say the vast majority of us would have absolutely no idea if we saw a one-of-a-kind stolen painting displayed somewhere. I've never really been an art connoisseur. I do love to look at nice pictures and pretty paintings, but it's one of those things I just don't really get. Maybe I'm just too much of a simpleton to understand it all, but you really won't catch me standing around at a museum quietly staring at the same painting for 20 minutes. It's just not for me. But even still, I can understand the concept of value and protecting things that are really, really old so that future generations can admire them. So even I was saying, oh, no, the more I learned about this incredible heist. I love that you wrote that out for yourself and you called yourself a simpleton like verbally <laughs> and you even wrote it out. <laughs> Like, I was committed to using that word. <laughs> I love it. But I feel the same way with art. Like, I just, I think it's beautiful and interesting. And did you know that they had the big uh, here, and I know it's traveling, like the Van Gogh experience, the immersive experience. I've heard of it. Yes. Yeah. I brought my husband after Christmas, like that was his Christmas gift. And it was so cool, but like 30 minutes of it. And I was like, all right, I'm ready to go. Like, I, I don't really get it. Like it's very, it is actually really interesting and they play music and it's like this whole experience, but I'm just such, I'm a simpleton. And I, wa I was in there and I was like, this is cool. But as soon as it started to repeat, I'm like, all right, let's go. We've already seen all this. Yeah. Well, in a <laughs> way, yeah, in a way I am kind of envious of people who have like the I don't know. I feel like you need some degree of like mental quietness to even be able to 
to take in art like oh, that yeah. and just appreciate it. And like, I feel like my brain would never, it would just never allow me to stand there and like really admire and like take it all in and just like appreciate everything, you know, not the way some people do. So no, I know I I've know. got like a three second time frame. I'm like, all right, I've seen this on the internet. Next thing. Okay. We've seen this. Is there snacks around this corner? Um, all right. <laughs> like, right. <laughs> it just doesn't compute for me. I, I totally get that. But when you think of world-famous art museums, the first thing that might come to mind are places like the Louvre in Paris, which houses the Mona Lisa, or the Dorsey, where you can see the original Starry Night painted by Van Gogh. But we actually have some noteworthy art museums right here in the U.S. where visitors come from all over to see other famous art pieces in real life. One of the most famous American paintings, American Gothic, is housed at the Art Institute Chicago, and many original works by world-famous artists are found at other famous U.S. museums. One such museum is the Isabella Stewart Gardner Museum in Boston, Massachusetts. It's really more than just a museum. The building itself and all the galleries within it were really a work of art in their own right. The museum was constructed from 1899 to 1901, and it was equipped with a private fourth floor where curator Isabella Stewart Gardner lived herself. Isabella was born into a wealthy New York City family on April 14, 1840, and her road to curating art was paved in dollar bills and diamonds. It sounds like she was like an OG real housewife, really. Right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, something like that, yeah. <laughs> so Isabella attended the best private schools, and she eventually moved to Paris, where she graduated and met a man. His name was John, or Jack Lowell Gardner. They fell in love and they moved back to New York City before getting married in 1860 when Isabella was 20 years old. The couple later moved to Boston and welcomed a baby boy, but he tragically passed away from pneumonia before turning two, leaving Isabella depressed and really unsure where to go from there. After struggling emotionally for four years, Isabella's therapist suggested a nice relaxing getaway for her and Jack. Isabella agreed that it would be good for her and so they planned a trip to Northern Europe and Russia. This trip really turned into an extended traveling adventure, where Isabella and Jack got to explore Egypt, the Middle East, and Asia, and Isabella really loved this trip. I can imagine she did, and she kept journals about everything she did and everything she saw. Do people do this anymore? I'm so like, I feel like I need to travel the world now after like- Hashtag simpleton. <laughs> I mean, for real. And there's probably people laughing at me right now as I say that, but- um. Yeah, like what an incredible opportunity to just be able to just decide that you're going to take some time off and explore different places. That's just amazing to me, like that people yeah. do that. I mean, do they? Do people well, still I do think, that? <laughs> I think the key word, key thing here is she was born into money and I think she married money too. <laughs> so I think that like gave her a good start oh, on yeah. her travels. I don't think it's like every simpleton's thing right. to be able to do that. <laughs> So finally, in 1878, Isabella found a new passion to reignite her spirit. After attending the readings of famous art professor Charles Eliot Norton, Isabella found herself in a friendship with Charles. He was the first ever art history professor at Harvard University, so he was kind of a big deal. And when he recommended that Isabella start collecting rare books and manuscripts, she took it to heart and she did just that. She started collecting early editions of Dante's works and things snowballed from there. When Isabella's father passed away in 1891, she inherited $1.75 million, which would be equal to over $53 million today, and this led her to having the opportunity to really expand her art collection to new heights. Art collecting led Isabella to meeting Italian Renaissance art connoisseur Bernard Berenson, and they became friends as well. Isabella trusted Bernard more than anybody else when it came to art, and he became her chief art advisor and kind of a mentor in some ways. As her advisor, Bernard helped Isabella acquire many noteworthy art pieces for her collection. And as we said before, Melissa and I, neither one of us really know anything about art, so you're just going to have to take our word for it that <laughs> these are noteworthy art pieces because, you know, we can't really fact check because we don't know a lot about art. <laughs> So <laughs> I, I just love this idea that we're like, here's the information. Right. Uh, yeah, no, we're not. I mean, if you say it's famous, we say it's famous. Right. Good for you. <laughs> yeah, this is what the research says is famous. I really have no, <laughs> no clue. Um, I cannot personally stand by any of this. Um, so in 19, sorry, that's 1891, she purchased Vermeer's The Concert at a Paris auction for $6,000. And that was in like 
1891. So that would be roughly equal to $183,262 today. That's a really expensive piece of artwork. Yeah. I just spending that. Well, much actually, on I don't think it is, Mandy, to be totally honest <laughs> compared to what we hear. But to us, we're like, it's not 1999 in the back of a home goods. I don't know oh about gosh. this. I make we I just sound ridiculous in this episode. Probably I have no clue. I don't know what anything is worth. Apparently, Do you know that the other day I caught myself being interested in gas station TV. And so I don't really know how I'm allowed to even be, <laughs> be a part of this episode. I was like really into what they were saying and my gas had already stopped. I was like, oh, my gosh, Melissa, you got to reevaluate. Oh, oh, my goodness. Okay. okay, sorry. Yeah, that's all right. So in 1896, Isabella also purchased Titan's Rape of Europa for 20,000 pounds, as well as Rembrandt's self-portrait, age 23. I guess these artists would do self-portraits at different ages, and so they're all worth something, right? The age 23 self-portrait is, of course, going to be the only I can't one in imagine existence. how little my current portrait would be worth. <laughs> Right. So around this time, Isabella and her husband, Jack, had started talking about opening a museum of their own because Isabella was now starting to acquire more and more valuable and rare artwork. And she needs a place to display it. Of course, who goes around buying all this artwork? You don't want to just keep it in a closet somewhere. You want somewhere for people to look at it. So the couple began planning for their museum in 1896. But unfortunately, in 1898, Jack passed away. Isabella eventually decided to go forward with the plan to open their museum herself. Construction on the museum began in Boston in 1899 and was finally completed in 1901. The place itself is just as grand as any artwork Isabella was planning to put in it, as Melissa said in the beginning. If you really like cool architecture, then you will want to check this one out. The architect that worked on the museum was Willard Sears, who was a prominent architect in the New England area in the 19th and early 20th century. He's also the brains behind the Pilgrim Monument in Provincetown, Massachusetts, and he had a major role in the gorgeous Old South Church in Boston. Although the museum was quite grand at the time it was built, there was nothing really nearby. It was kind of built in the middle of swamplands, but it was very beautiful nonetheless, and every gallery had its own theme and was expertly decorated. When the museum was completed, Isabella moved into it, living among her most cherished possessions in a private quarters on the fourth floor. A friend of Isabella's later said that it had been a long-standing dream of Isabella's to have a house filled with beautiful pictures and objects of art for others to come and enjoy, and that opening the museum was a dream of her youth being carried out. Throughout 1901 and 1902, Isabella continued to acquire more and more valuable artwork until eventually she owned over 2,500 paintings, sculptures, tapestries, furniture, manuscripts, rare books, and decorative arts. Finally, on January 1st, 1903, the museum was installed with all of these magnificent works and the Isabella Stewart Gardner Museum held its grand opening celebration. A month later, the museum was fully open and the public could finally witness one of the finest private art collections in the country. Isabella continued to add new works to her collection and changed out her display pieces, and she eventually had 16,000 pieces for the museum, and it became a passion project for her. Yeah, I would say. Yeah. <laughs> Isabella wanted the museum to stay open forever so that it could benefit the public for both educational purposes and for enjoyment. She always said that if she died and if the museum ever had to be closed or changed from the way that she had made it, she wanted all of her artwork to be auctioned off in France and she wanted the proceeds to go to Harvard University. But to see to it that the museum had the best chance for success, even after she was gone, she actually set up a $3.6 million endowment to operate the museum in her absence. She wrote in her will that nothing should be changed and no items should be added to or sold from her collection. Isabella passed away in 1924, and the museum has taken her wishes very seriously, even to this day, as we will get into as the episode continues on more. But before we get into all of that, we're going to take a quick break to hear a word from this week's sponsors. My toxic trait is that I can easily be convinced to sign up for a new subscription service, maybe a new streaming channel, or even razors. After all, they make it so easy to get, but canceling can be a true pain. And since it's just a few dollars a month, sometimes I don't even notice it at first. But I bet you'll never guess how much subscription companies charge you every month. On average, it's nearly $200. 
Make your subscription submit with Truebill. Truebill is the new app that helps you identify and stop paying for subscriptions you don't need, want, or you simply forgot about. For me, subscriptions are all about the convenience, right? Any subscription companies know that, and they make it hard to cancel. But Truebill makes it easy to get out of. All you have to do is go to truebill.com moms and sign up and download the Truebill app. Then you just link your bank account and credit cards to Truebill like I did, and then you literally click on the things you want Truebill to cancel. Things like the Paramount Plus subscription I've had over six months that I don't even remember signing up for. That's eleven ninety nine dollars a month, which meant I've paid over $70 the last six months for something I've never used. And having Truebill concierge means I don't have to just search all over to figure out how to cancel something. Truebill does it for me. People are saving on average up to $720 a year with Truebill. I love Truebill and I'm already saving almost $800 this year. And it goes beyond just subscriptions. Truebill gives you a breakdown of what you're spending every month so you can make changes to your budget. Plus they can negotiate your bills for certain things like they're doing for me with my satellite radio. Truebill has over 2 million users and helps save them over $100 million. Like Matthew B., who says, In a matter of seconds, I saved $660 for the year on my DirecTV bill, saved $120 for the year on my Sirius XM bill, saved $840 a year on my car insurance. Don't fall for subscription scams. Start canceling today at Truebill.com moms. Go right now. Truebill.com moms. It could save you thousands a year. Truebill.com moms. If you're looking to save time or money this year as a small business owner, go with the one company that can help you do both, Stamps.com. Stamps.com allows me to print official postage right from my computer so I can spend less time in line at the post office and more time on the podcast, and they want to do the same for you. For over 20 years, Stamps.com has been a huge part of over 1 million businesses, and that's because Stamps.com gives you access to all the post office and UPS shipping services that you need right from your computer. Plus, you can get discounts that you can't find anywhere else, including up to 40% off USPS rates and 76% off UPS. Whether you have a podcast like us or an Etsy shop like a lot of our friends or even a full-blown warehouse and you're shipping out orders, Stamps.com will make your life easier, just like it does for us. All you need is a computer and a standard printer. That's it. Within minutes, you're up and running and printing official postage for any letter, any package, anywhere you want to send it. I just sent Patreon perks to listeners in the UK and Australia this week, all while in my pajamas. Save time and money this year with Stamps.com. Sign up with promo code MOMSANDMURDER for a special offer that includes a four-week trial, free postage, and a digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. Just go to Stamps.com, click the microphone at the top of the page, and enter code MOMSANDMURDER. Now back to the episode. So before the break, we were talking about Isabella and all of the artwork and basically artifacts that she was able to procure for her uh, museum that she had been building. So following her death, those who were left behind really took on this task of maintaining and operating a museum. But by the 1980s, things had begun to change. So it's really been close to 100 years since Isabella's even passed away. Everything has changed. Like, think of how much has changed in the last 100 years as far as security. I don't know, things like yeah. telephones and yeah, I mean, <laughs> computers. Technology has advanced quite a bit, for sure. Yeah. So, And she could have never pictured any of this, right? Like, things that could really help with a museum. But the museum really struggled with security issues, and they failed to follow even the most basic security protocols. It was pretty problematic considering how many priceless artifacts were contained inside this building. The 1980s and the 1990s were a really bad time for the art business in Boston as the instances of art theft were on the rise and the underground international art trade was booming at $1 billion per year. So there was big money in art, stolen art. Every single other museum besides Isabella's museum that had Rembrandt paintings in it had been robbed by March of 1990, but their luck was soon to run out. In 1981, the museum hired security help in the form of a guard named Lyle Grindle. He helped bring the museum's security features up to really the bare minimum. He installed closed-circuit cameras to the entrances, motion detectors in the galleries, and he hired an additional 15 guards to the security staff. There were no cameras inside the galleries themselves, though, only the motion detectors. Another piece of protection that the museum was lacking was insurance, The reason for this was, they said, because Isabella made it her dying wish that the museum not make any new purchases, even if something was stolen. So it's not like they would be buying these replacements for anything anyway. Obviously, this leaves the museum vulnerable. It's like, if you steal it, don't worry, we're not going to replace it. We can't even, there's no money in this. Like, it's just gone, which is just wild. They took her words so seriously. 
1982, it was thought that a plot to rob the Gardner Museum was uncovered. Investigators found out that Ralph Rossetti, who was an associate of the mob, was planning to steal a Matisse work along with six other paintings. He was going to throw a grenade into the courtyard during regular operating hours, and so when all the guests were distracted and running for the exits, he was going to sneak in, steal the artwork. This heist never ended up happening, though, because Ralph got picked up for another unrelated art theft, but it did serve as a wake-up call to the Gardner Museum. That's when they hired an independent security consultant to advise them. In 1988, the consultant couldn't find any major issues with their security setup. He said that the museum had a pretty good security operation for the time and place. But the consultant did make some suggestions for ways to improve security even more. He suggested enclosing the security equipment into its own security room instead of it just being behind the front desk way out in the open. And he said to also add a protective door to the side entrance of the building. Another suggestion, which was a really simple one, was to pay the guards more money. At the time, the guards for the museum were making about $2 an hour above the minimum wage of the time, and they weren't given any proper training. Most of these guards were just young guys in their late teens and early 20s who would often break protocol during their night shift to, you know, let their friends in to drink, smoke weed, eat pizza, etc. Nobody's, you know, they're not paying them very much, so you're not going to get they're not taking it seriously, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So they're what do they have to lose? They don't have a whole lot to lose. Right. And I can't imagine that it's it's got to be extremely boring sitting in a museum all night. So you can see where the temptation would come in to just be like, let me just invite some friends to come hang out with me here all night. And like nothing's going to happen anyway because the chances of anything happening are super unlikely that something crazy is going to go down. So you can kind of understand, you know, why they were just like, okay, like I'll take this job like working overnight just shifts sitting. at this museum. Yeah, like but not really, you know, not really taking it seriously, not really sure. actually caring to protect the art and the things that were inside, but just you know, having a job. So Lyle Grindle, the head security guard, had tried to advocate for higher pay for the security staff, but he was told by the museum management that there just wasn't enough money to give them raises. Lyle knew that the low pay was contributing to this issue of these young guys not taking this job very seriously and that it would be nearly impossible to find reliable workers on such a small salary. One of the guards later said that robbery really wasn't on their minds most of the nights that they were working there. They were more concerned with leaks and things within the building that could damage the artwork. But the big issue at hand really was that the museum was running out of money. When Isabella died and left the endowment for the operation of the museum, there was more than enough money to keep the museum open for decades. There were years that the museum had a surplus in their budget, and they would even donate to local charities. But by the 1980s, the endowment was shrinking and the museum was struggling to stay afloat. For years, the board thought the endowment would just last forever, so they didn't pay a lot of attention to things like bookkeeping and finances. So something to note about that is that the board, while it was made up of very nice people, it was not a very well-informed board. They never had worked for a corporation or any business. They didn't have any business skills experience, really had no business trying to run this museum long term. So by 1984, the budget was starting to dry up, and the museum was in the red and struggling to keep up with rising management costs. By 1988, the endowment was only able to cover about half of the museum's $2.8 million operating expenses, and they made up for some of it through fundraising and grants, but they still came up $140,000 short, and the situation was looking very bleak. Basic maintenance on the building was being neglected. For example, the skylight in the courtyard was leaking. The walls were stained. The lighting was just all wrong. Some of the works were placed in direct sunlight, and there was no air conditioning in the building. Something had to be done. So the board members enlisted the help of people who did know what they were doing and did have experience and knowledge in corporation and business skills. The new board came up with a new plan, and their plan was a plan to renovate the building. They planned to fund this renovation through fundraising, and they also hired a new director, a woman by the name of Anne Hawley, and she came in and did a complete overhaul of the place. She cut programs, she revamped the staff, and she called for a full security review. Plans for the renovation were in the works, and it seemed like the Gardner Museum was going to live to see another day, and it did. But before the renovation even got underway, something shocking happened during St. Patrick's Day weekend in 1990. 
It was around 6.45 a.m. on March 18th when a maintenance man for the museum showed up for his shift and rang the call box to be let in by the night shift guards. But to his surprise and confusion, no one answered. A short time later, the daytime security guard arrived, and he couldn't get a response from anyone inside either, even after they went around tapping on windows trying to get someone's attention. So the two men decided to go across the street and call their supervisor, who then came to the museum and used a key to open the door. All three of them went inside the museum, but when they didn't find either of the night shift guards inside, they knew something was wrong and they called 911. Officers were sent to investigate, and what they found was pretty deplorable. The museum galleries had been ransacked with shattered glass and cracked frames everywhere. After a 20-minute search, police finally found the two night shift guards that had been working that night. They were in the basement, handcuffed to a steam pipe in a workbench. The men, Rick Abbott and Randy Heston, had their heads wrapped in duct tape with a small space left for them to breathe. When officers asked Rick and Randy, you know, what the heck happened here, they told them that their shift had started at 11.30 the night before. Neither of them had any formal security training, and worse, Rick was known to show up to work drunk or high frequently. He was the kind of guy who was wearing a band t-shirt under his security uniform. Randy, on the other hand, was just a student at the New England Conservatory who loved playing his trombone more than he loved the priceless art that he was guarding. The young men said that Rick had gone to make the first rounds while Randy stayed at the security desk that night. At some point, an alarm goes off on the fourth floor, which was where Isabella's original living quarters were, but Rick didn't see anything unusual when he checked up there. By 1 a.m., he was done making the rounds, and he went back to the security desk and sat down while Randy began on his rounds. About 1.24 a.m., Rick was startled by two police officers at the side entrance to the museum. They had actually pushed the buzzer, and they were asking to be let inside. The officers said that they had reports of a disturbance and that they needed to ask the guards some questions. Going against protocol, Rick buzzed the two officers in the building that night. Keep in mind, it's still St. Patrick's Day evening, so it's completely plausible that police could be out, you know, responding to calls and checking things out in the area. Rick then used his radio to call Randy back to the security desk to talk to the officers. Once Randy gets back, the two officers claim that they had a warrant for his arrest and they instructed him to come out from behind the desk to be handcuffed. Rick was also handcuffed and they were told to face the wall. According to Randy, while the officers were arresting them, he noticed something strange about one of the officers' mustaches. He said it looked fake. The uniforms that the officers were wearing looked legitimate, but once the security guards were handcuffed, the officers announced that this was actually a robbery. Both of the guards were then taken to the basement and restrained there. And we still have more to get into the story after one last break to hear word from this week's sponsors. I find when I'm trying to eat healthy, snacks are forever where I screw up. I have a notorious sweet tooth, and when I'm craving something quick and delicious and don't have time to make something, I'm just going to grab whatever's closest to me. Lucky for me, I just bought a case of Monk Packs. Monk Packs are the low-sugar, keto-friendly bars that are plant-based, gluten-free, and non-GMO. They have all the right ingredients for you to feel good about what you're eating, but they also taste amazing. The Monk Pack Keto Granola Bars and Nut and Seed Bars contain just one gram of sugar or less, two to three grams of net carbs, and each bar is 150 calories or less. I fell in love with Monk Pack and just ordered a 12-pack of the Coconut Almond Dark Chocolate Keto Nut and Seed Bars. They just hit the sweet spot while also giving me a little taste of salty that I never get tired of. I throw one in my purse when I'm out running errands, so if I get a craving or just want a snack, I have something in my purse I can feel good about eating. Plus, there are so many delicious flavors like sea salt, dark chocolate, coconut cocoa chip, and caramel sea salt. You'll want to try them all. Get 20% off your first purchase of any Monk Pack product by visiting monkpack.com and entering our code MOMS at checkout. To get started, just go to monkpack.com, that's M-U-N-K-P-A-C-K.com, and select any product. Then enter the code MOMS at checkout to save 20% off your purchase. Monkpack is so confident in their product, it's backed with a 100% happiness guarantee. So if you don't like it for any reason, they'll exchange the product or refund your money, whichever you prefer. If you're looking for a way to have a fresh start in the new year, look no further than Grove Collaborative. This is the perfect time to make your home healthier, happier, and more sustainable, and Grove Collaborative wants to help. My resolution this year is to clean my toilets every day. And while that doesn't sound super fun, Grove makes it so easy. I purchased the Grove Coat Multi-Purpose Cleaner Concentrate plus Twist and Slide Spray Glass Bottle in Bright Lime. 
Unlike other cleaners, the Apple and Pear Blossom scent actually smells fantastic and it works, making keeping this resolution super easy. Plus, their concentrated cleaners and refillable glass bottles like I have are friendlier to the planet and twice as effective as leading natural brands. Grove carries literally hundreds of products aimed at replacing single-use plastics across your home and personal care routine. In fact, by 2025, Grove will be 100% plastic-free. I'm working to make a switch to sustainable products in every room of my house, from hand soaps to laundry and more. Groveco has me covered with safe formulas and refillable packaging that never compromises on performance. Join us in over 2 million households already shopping sustainably at Grove. Go to grove.com slash mm today to get a free gift set worth up to $50 with your first order. Plus, shipping is fast and free. Get started right now at grove.com slash mm. Grove.com slash mm. Just like Lenny Kravitz, I want to get away. I want to fly away. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And while I'm stuck on the ground for now, I can settle for a new kind of journey, all with a fun mobile game. Step into the enchanting world of June Parker with June's Journey, where a spectacular adventure awaits you. And the best part? No plane tickets needed. Bid farewell to the ordinary and immerse yourself in a realm where intrigue dances with elegance, all thanks to the drama-filled escapades of our charming heroine, June Parker. Whether you crave a captivating mystery or simply wish to escape the humdrum of daily life, June's journey is your portal to excitement. Join June on her quest to uncover hidden family secrets and navigate the tangled web surrounding her sister's demise. So slip into your virtual flapper dress and dive into a world where each corner holds a new clue and every twist leaves you on the edge of your seat. But hold on to your pearls because June's Journey is no ordinary mobile game. I'm knee deep in the fifth chapter and each section is really more delightful than the last. From the breathtaking scenery to the catchy tunes, every aspect oozes sophistication and refinement. So don't hesitate any longer, step into June's world and let the thrilling adventure unfold. Can you crack the case? Download June's Journey for free today on iOS and Android. Now back to the episode. So before the break, we were talking about the Isabella Stewart Gardner Museum, a little bit about the history there, and kind of where they were in the late 1980s. They were kind of struggling financially, but things were getting back on track. And they were about to renovate the museum. This was already in the works. The papers were signed. And suddenly, the weekend of St. Patrick's Day, the museum is getting robbed. Um, The two guards that worked there overnight were tied up in the basement. And this is just kind of a chaotic scene. So since the museum had the motion detectors in the galleries, the investigators that showed up were able to track the movement of the thieves within the museum once they were in there. Based on the data they obtained from the motion detection printouts, along with the physical evidence, it's believed that the thieves went upstairs to the second floor after they left the guards tied up in the basement. At 1.48 a.m., the thieves went into the Dutch Room, which was the gallery that held many pieces of the most valuable items in the entire museum. From this room, the thieves stole several works of art. We aren't going to list all of them, but there were a couple of very important works that we do want to mention. One of them was a piece by Vermeer called The Concert. This original painting is incredibly valuable because the artist Vermeer only has a total of 36 works of art in the entire world. This painting was removed from its frame and stolen from the Gardner Museum, making it the most valuable stolen thing in the world. Its value alone was $200 million. Whoa. Yeah. Another major loss in the heist from the Dutch room was a one-of-a-kind seascape by Rembrandt called Christ in the Storm on the Sea of Galilee. This is Rembrandt's only known seascape that he ever painted, like ever, which I guess if you are an art person and you're a Rembrandt fan particularly, then this might mean something to you. Yeah, Um, people are like, whoa, listen to this. And we're like, wow, yeah, Yeah. no, that doesn't (laughs) sound good. (laughs) Yeah, so, um, but the way that this painting was stolen really truly is sad and devastating. Um, The thieves actually cut it out of the frame rather than wasting their time unscrewing the back of the frame to take it out. They just took a blade around the edge of the frame and cut through the canvas of this one-of-a-kind work of art. And even without being an art person, I can see how that would be like really upsetting to to somebody who um, really does value art and understands the meaning. And that's like so messed up, right? Because if I painted some, I I don't even care. If I just color something with a colored pencil, I'm going to be mad if somebody cuts it up. (laughs) You know, so. (laughs) (laughs) Then you don't live with my son. I have nothing. I value nothing. Nothing in my life is of value. (laughs) Yeah, so these thieves actually used this method of cutting paintings out of their frames on other works that they stole as well that night. 
From the same gallery, the thieves made away with numerous artifacts, including more paintings, an ancient Chinese bronze beaker from the 12th century, and a tiny postage stamp size self-portrait etching by Rembrandt. They actually removed a full-size Rembrandt self-portrait off the wall, but they appeared to have forgotten it. And this was the portrait that first made Isabella Gardner want to open a museum. So it's kind of cool, I guess, that it didn't get stolen. If you want to look on the bright side of things, you know, that was like the piece of art that started it all for her museum idea. The thieves then made their way into other galleries, taking nothing from some but robbing others. From the short gallery, they took five hand drawings by Degas and a 10-inch bronze eagle finial that was on top of a Napoleonic battle flag. Next, they went into a gallery downstairs called the Blue Room and stole Manet's Chez Tortoni, although strangely, the motion detector in that room did not go off. The thieves then went back to the security desk and removed the videotapes from the cameras and then went to make sure that the security guards, Rick and Randy, were still tied up in the basement. At 2.40 a.m., the robbers went out the same door they came in from and made two trips to load the art into their vehicle before leaving at 2.45 a.m. They never even went on to the third floor of the museum. All in all, the thieves were inside the museum for 81 minutes and they stole 13 pieces of art worth hundreds of millions of dollars. The pieces ranged from 130 years old to more than 3,000 years old. I can't even imagine something existing that's that old. I just – even if I saw it and you told me it was 3,000 years old, I still would just be like, okay, I just don't – I feel like your brain can't comprehend (laughs) like something existing that long ago. Yeah. No, I get that. I mean I don't, which is why I get what you're saying. (laughs) So authorities were completely baffled by this heist, beginning with the fact that it lasted for 81 minutes. Most art thefts take about three minutes, which is also like, why did you cut this crap out? You were in there 81 minutes. You couldn't have taken the time to unscrew these things? Like, I don't even understand that. So it appeared, though, that the thieves really didn't know what they were doing, and they had no real plan for which pieces to steal. For example, they left the most valuable painting in the museum alone, but took lesser items that were really close by it. It was thought, based on the number of Rembrandt pieces that were taken, that the thieves were specifically there looking for Rembrandt's artwork. Dusting for fingerprints in this case wouldn't really do much good since, after all, it's a museum, it's open to the public, it's covered with, you know, people's fingerprints from around the world. They're never going to be able to find it with fingerprints. There's no footprints or other clues that are left by the thieves that would help them figure out who these people were. One agent working the case later said that this was such an unusual case because there really wasn't a shred of concrete evidence at all. They didn't even know whether or not the robbers wore gloves in the heist. Their suspects could literally be anyone. I mean, the one thing they kind of have is that like one guy's mustache kind of looked fake. What if he just grew bad mustaches? You know, it could be anyone. So thousands of leads were investigated in the first few days, as well as interviews with staff members reviewing old staff records and looking into anyone and everyone who had any connection with the museum, such as electricians, carpenters, paint restorers, just everyone. They're looking everywhere. They even tracked down a catering company that had delivered food to a part of the museum at one time. And of course, there's still this question about Rick and Randy's roles and responsibilities in this, which by the way, Rick and Randy are just those two names together. (laughs) It sounds like a sitcom. It does, right? I would probably watch it. Yeah. (laughs) So they're trying to figure out what their responsibilities could be in this. They were considered suspects or the very least persons of interest. Officers went over their stories numerous times and their personal lives and, you know, connections were looked into very closely. Both of them actually took polygraph tests, and Randy passed his, but Rick's was deemed inconclusive. But eventually the FBI came to realize that neither of these men were really savvy enough to pull this off, so they turned their attention elsewhere. I will say... (laughs) (laughs) What were you going to say? I was going to say, imagine the police being like, this person is literally too stupid to have committed this crime. (laughs) Honestly, the biggest compliment of my life would be to hear those words. I'd be like, you know I'm not smart enough to do any of this, right? Right. (laughs) But even with thousands of leads, the police still weren't making much progress in the investigation, and millions of dollars in artwork was still missing. Meanwhile, the museum itself was still struggling with all the issues it was facing before this theft even happened. They were in a tough position, not even being able to offer a reward, you know, for the return of the artwork oh, yeah. or the information. Yeah, you know, they, they don't have any money, so it's like, what are they going to do? They, they're kind of like just hands are tied here. Yeah. 
So board members ended up asking auction houses to help them fund a reward. And within three days, they announced that there would be a $1 million reward, no questions asked, as long as the artwork was safely returned, which, okay, I get get it. Like, and $1 million, like, oh, yeah, cool reward. But like, if these people stole things that were worth like $200 million, like, why are they going to care? They're certainly not going to just like turn it in and take a million dollar payout. Like, I don't know. Maybe I don't understand how rewards work to people, to criminals. Yeah, well, here's what I'm thinking, though. You have these, you know, incredibly expensive paintings, but how do you sell them to somebody? Oh, right, what by are you going to do with them? Yeah, I have a, a painting. It's worth $200 million. Okay, great. Where'd you get it? <laughs> <laughs> that part's a little suspicious. Do you want to buy from me or not? Right. So, you know, how how can you sell these valuable paintings? There has to be like a whole underground network of you sell to this person to this person, you know, like no questions asked, but it's not going to be as valuable as it would have been, right? I would think. I don't know. Yeah. yeah. See, I'm not that savvy. Yeah. I'm not that savvy. <laughs> so nobody ever claimed the reward, as we just said. Like, I just don't know how it would work. I don't know why they would. But like you said, what would they do with all this artwork? But nobody claimed this reward nonetheless. And the investigation really hit a wall. Where do you go from there? So still to this day, to this day, none of the pieces of art that were stolen have been recovered, although authorities have been able to track some of the art's movement at different times, but they have still never been able to actually locate it. So I find this kind of fascinating because, first of all, how are they tracking how? Like, how are they tracking the Right. Like, if you know where it is, like, I don't understand. Like, why don't you just go get it? Like, it doesn't make any sense. I'm afraid that we're the Rick and Randy of this episode. (laughs) We are. Oh, my gosh. So anyway, they were not able to actually um, locate the art They knew where it was. It was moving around. Couldn't go get it, though. But the FBI learned 10 years after the heist that the art had been transported to Connecticut and the Philadelphia region. And some was taken to Philadelphia, where it was sold by those responsible for the theft 10 years later. So they held on to it for a really long time, which I guess if you're sitting on that kind of money, you have all the time in the world. But so the police have identified the suspects as members of a criminal organization with a base in the mid-Atlantic states in New England. And the last time the police were able to track the location of the art was to a 2003 exchange between two mobsters in a main parking lot. But the trail on the art goes totally cold after that. And that was now 19 years ago. And nobody has seen or heard from the art since then. So over the decades, there have been many suspects in the Gardner Museum heist. There's actually been so many that we can't even mention them all. But here are some examples of who the FBI believes may have committed this crime. Many of the suspects have been mob members or linked to the mob in some way. Most famously, um, Whitey Bulger was suspected in the heist, but he claimed that he had nothing to do with it at all. In fact, he was just as interested in finding out who did it as the police were because he wanted to punish the thieves for operating on his turf. Interesting. Oh. Yeah. <laughs> Interesting take on that one. I'll help you officers, but right. I'm going to kill them because right. this was my area of business. <laughs> right. I should have robbed the museum. Um, yeah. So there have also been people who have allegedly come very close to either solving the crime or giving up the names of those involved, but those people have turned up dead before their story could go anywhere. A few examples of this are uh, Joe Murray, an ex-FBI agent, uh, said that he had information about the heist in 1992, which was just two years after it happened, and he was killed a short time later. Also in 1992, there were some rumors that a mob associate named Bobby Donati was going to speak to the authorities about the heist, and he was later found dead in the trunk of his car. In another instance, an FBI agent who had been working the case for 10 years named Neil Cronin, um, he finally thought that he figured out who the thieves were. But then interestingly, he was killed after a semi-truck crashed into his car, which is kind of a freak accident, kind of a coincidence that he died. Kind of. Yeah. Um, I'd like to go on record saying we have no idea who did this. We don't. Uh, I have no clue. never know. No, I couldn't venture Uh -uh. to say. (laughs) (laughs) So in 2014, the FBI shared the names of two people they believe are the thieves responsible for this heist. Their names are George Reisfelder and Lenny DiMuzio. It's believed that these two men were working under the orders of crime lord Carmelo Merlino. They believe that George and Lenny stole the art and gave it to bigger crime figures in the Connecticut and Pennsylvania areas. In 1997, informants told the FBI that they'd overheard Carmelo talking about trading the stolen art for the $5 million reward. In 1998, the FBI does this sting and ends up arresting Carmelo. They told him that if he helped them find the art, that they'd go easy on him. But Carmelo just insisted that he didn't know anything about the art. 
Years later, other informants gave the FBI more information that solidified the theory that the art was stolen by George and Lenny. The informant said that George owned the same type of car that witnesses described seeing outside the museum on the night of the heist. They said that Lenny was also a skilled burglar who had plenty of experience with the Merlino gang. Ironically, both of these men died shortly after the heist. George overdosed and Lenny was shot to death. Carmelo Merlino ended up dying in prison in 2005. So the FBI's theory makes a lot of sense. George and Lenny looked a lot like early police sketches of the men, and two different members of George's family claimed to have seen one of the stolen paintings hanging on George's wall just three months after the heist. Again, I don't have any any theories on this. Uh, I have no I don't theories, know. but it kind of goes back to how you were saying, like, something is only as valuable as what you can sell it for, right? And so, like, obviously right. it's being sold, you know, within – different crime um, organizations and like very underground black market stuff and it's kind of being you know hidden and kind of bought and traded and sold and everything but like again at the end of the day what do you do with it like who I don't understand like I feel like it doesn't have any (laughs) value you know because like you can't sell it to like anybody legitimately so like I don't understand the point. You know, I don't understand the point. I really don't understand the point. It's gotta be (laughs) mobsters allegedly and stuff like that. Like it's all underground like allegedly doing stuff allegedly that allegedly (laughs) monsters do allegedly. So although this case is technically unsolved, the FBI believes that what we just said is as good as it will get without any evidence that proves any other theory. As of today, the Gardner Museum is still open for visitors and the empty frames that used to contain the stolen artwork are still hanging in the museum as a placeholder and a symbol of hope for their return. The Gardner Museum heist is still the largest property crime in the history of the United States. Following the heist, the museum took their security setup a lot more seriously and hired guards that had to go through extensive training and background checks. They also installed dozens of cameras in every size and capability throughout the museum. The cameras are state-of-the-art with features like night vision, low light, covert, pan, zoom, tilt, all of that. The museum also took out theft insurance. According to the museum's website, they are offering a $10 million reward for information leading directly to the recovery of all 13 works in good condition, which I feel like would be very hard to do because, as we just said, it sounds like they everything has been separated and gone its, you know, it's gone its separate ways. I don't think yeah. all 13 works are still together. So especially not after all this time, you know, I know. the same one We're- person doesn't have everything. Moms and Murder is going to offer a billion dollars to whoever finds all right. 13. It's just not going to happen. <laughs> it's not going to happen. Yeah, exactly. Um, So a separate reward of $100,000 is being offered just for the Napoleonic Eagle Finial. The museum's chief of security wants everybody to know that they can give information to the FBI, to the museum, or to the U.S. Attorney's Office, and they can even provide information through a third party, such as their own legal counsel. The U.S. Attorney's Office is even willing to consider immunity protection for information that leads to the artwork. The statute of limitations for the actual theft has expired, but everybody really just wants to get the artwork back at this point. The heist has been the topic of many books, documentaries, and podcasts. So many people want to solve the heist and recover the artwork that it has led to some pretty funny occurrences. Um, According to Bloomberg Businessweek, a copy of one painting that was used on the show Monk looked so real that the FBI actually called the producers of that show to make sure – to make them go check that it was just a prop and not like actually one of the pieces of artwork. Yeah. Isn't that crazy? But, like, how does anyone even know? That's where my Rick and Randy brain How goes. do they know? Like, how how do you know? they know? Yeah. How do well, you that's, know? Yeah, that's what I was saying in, in the very, you know, in the very, very beginning of the episode. Like, I could be standing next to that eagle finial that's worth $100,000 and literally never even know it because I, d- I just wouldn't – I wouldn't know. How, I wouldn't no. know any, any artwork or any stolen piece. It could be hanging on your living room wall, Melissa, and I could come over and just hang out with you there and not even notice that you had the stolen artwork. Like, that is how ignorant I am to art. So crazy. I love the monk connection to that. That's, like, yeah. a really fun, like, to be like, okay, we're going to have to call them. Like, how did – you know, imagine the monk producers getting the call being like, from the FBI. Sure you're the yeah. real FBI? <laughs> I know. It would be hard to think you weren't being pranked, right? Like – on the, on Everyone thinks they're being pranked. Exactly. In that, yeah. in that story. <laughs> <laughs> this, I enjoyed that story. Yeah. Though. This story um, reminds me. So like how we had said, it's just so crazy in the Rick and Randy and, and, you know, the getting tied up in the basement and thank goodness they weren't hurt. Right. In this yeah, theft, yeah. like they were just tied up in the basement and, you know, that it, it wasn't a, a, a different type of story. But it reminds me of what was the episode that we did where it was 
the Loomis Fargo heist and how they, Fargo, yep. they turned that into like a comedy a kind mm-hmm. of movie, but it was based on a true story. But they also did that with the movie Pain and Gain, you know, which we also love. We did an episode about the case that that was about. Yeah, but I yeah. feel like this would make a good, like a dark comedy, you know, kind of crime comedy movie. Yeah. Starring um, Will Ferrell. Yeah. For sure. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean, it would be, I could, I could just picture, you know, having a, just a hilarious cast, um, you know, doing a movie about this. So, oh yeah, if you're out there, awesome. producers listening, please Shh. make let's sell movie. it. Let's sell it. Shush. <laughs> we do not own rights to this story, no. but <laughs> oh, crap. <laughs> Who do you think we are? <laughs> I really don't know how things work. <laughs> we really don't. So, in order to prove that we don't know how things work, even further, <laughs> we're going to turn the page, move on to last thing before we go. This one's going to be a little different. I think Melissa and I said that we're going to post some photos on Instagram when this episode comes out so that yep. you can, you know, refer to what in the heck we're talking about as we're going through it. So it's actually a really simple concept, but the fact that you guys can't see what we're looking at might make it a little – just go to Instagram. Go to the Instagram. Just go to Instagram. Just go to the Instagram. So what we're going to do is Melissa and I have sent each other three different paintings. Um, we didn't tell each other what they were called. Some of them we've like seen, you've seen them before, right? But you may not right. know the title of the painting. Um, so we each just did three. I sent Melissa three and she sent me three. And we are going to name these paintings ourselves. And then we'll tell you what paintings they actually are. Is that, okay. is that what you want to do? Yep. That okay. sounds good. Perfect. Do you have the ones I sent you, Melissa? Yep. I have them up. The first one I sent you. Do you want to describe it? Do you want to describe what it looks like? <laughs> Absolutely. This is a uh, woman on a swing with crazy eyes um, <laughs> in the middle of a forest with little cherub angels around. And one man is like pulling her on the swing and another man is looking up her dress. That's the only way I can describe <laughs> that. <laughs> so I am going to name this. If I was going to name this, I would either call it the angels who saw too much because <laughs> there's a lot going on here or the original OnlyFans. Oh my gosh. <laughs> wow. Um, those are actually both substantially more exciting than the actual title of this painting, which is just The Swing. <laughs> <laughs> I could have made this painting worth a lot more money with my titles. <laughs> you totally could have. Okay. So the first one that you sent me is the famous painting that we have all seen. I know the artist, don't know the actual name of it. This is a Salvador Dali painting, correct? Yes, Uh huh. it is. You've all seen it, the one with the melting clocks and the weird melted animal thing on the ground, right? Yeah, I don't know (laughs) what that is, yeah. So, But I feel like all his paintings look the same to me, so I really... (laughs) We'd like to emphasize again, we don't know anything about art. Okay, so this one I'm going to call Florida's Dog Days of Summer. Oh, that's actually pretty good. Yeah. I like that. Everything looks hot and melty and like super gross. So, Melissa, what is and this painting actually called? It's called <laughs> The Persistence of Memory. Oh. Basically the same thing. Florida's Dog Days of Summer. No, it is it's for not. me. <laughs> <laughs> no, I like that better. That's awesome. All right. So next one for you, Melissa, or the next one that I sent you. What are you looking okay, at the, here? <laughs> the next one you sent me is it looks like it's evening time. There is a lion, again, with creepy eyes, standing kind of hovering over a woman who who is laying down with a stick and a guitar <laughs> is right next to her. And I have named this portrait of a mother who's willing to sleep next to a lion for just a minute of sleep in the guitar. She hopes he will break that her sister <laughs> bought her kid for Christmas. <laughs> um, I mean, <laughs> I can't be far off on that title. <laughs> very close. It's actually just called the sleeping gypsy. <laughs> oh, but why does the lion look so aggressive? By Henry Rosu. I think the lion looks like he is protecting her while she sleeps. Oh, crap. Maybe you're right. See how art is? You just interpret it differently depending on your, I guess. This is Rick and Randy <laughs> explaining art. <laughs> Rick and Randy's art hour. Oh, that's what I'm calling this. <laughs> okay. okay. Next okay. one, Mandy. So the next one that you sent me. It's a woman and she has praying hands and there are children surrounding her. One child looks very happy. I can't tell if it's a cherub. It must be because I think those are Yeah, it kind of looks like it, right? Yeah. So it's holding up another child, a baby that looks very (laughs) tired and like it needs a nap. But the lady is having none of it. She's literally praying for any kind of help here in the situation. So I'm going to title this one, Jesus Take the Wheel. (laughs) (laughs) 
That's awesome. <laughs> that baby, Mandy, whenever I sent it to her, she said, that baby looks more tired than the mom. <laughs> it does. I've never seen a baby look so tired in my life. Like the baby even wants a nap. Like, you know, kids fight sleep. This one's like, no, I'll just do it. And I'll he's reaching it. out like, please just hold me. And then this the cherub child is like happy as ever. Just like doesn't care about anything. The mom There's is another kid like, there and that kid's just like getting smushed by <laughs> Yeah, there's a lot going on. I feel this. I feel this painting. I do. This one oh, gives sure. me, I feel this one. <laughs> All right. Okay. Um, what's that one really called? Do you know? I don't know. Okay. That's all right. The last one. Oh, wait. Are you going to tell me what it's called? You're the one who sent me that. Oh, I'm the one that did it. Okay. <laughs> I thought you were going to tell me. I'm like, okay, fine. Um, Madonna and Child and Two Angels. Oh, okay. So the, okay. I see it now. I see that the angels are holding up the child, but- but why won't the mother accept it? <laughs> why won't the mother accept it? <laughs> I have no idea. Okay. All right. I the like angels are proud of the work, their work. And she's like, absolutely not. Not right. today. <laughs> oh, I love that. Okay. All right. The last one you sent me is a woman in a pink dress laying in a field, like looking towards a house, like a house in the distance. And I titled this mom lying in wait until bedtime's over to return home. Because you know she doesn't want to. She's just waiting <laughs> to see those lights go off to see her kids are asleep. And then she's going to pull in the driveway and be like, oh, the kids are asleep. Great. <laughs> <laughs> this one to me looks like because of the way the grass looks cut in the distance and not in the front. Like it makes uh -huh. me think like if I were to title this one, it would just be when is he going to finish the grass? <laughs> <laughs> There's three more acres. <laughs> Oh, I love it. See, art can be fun, Mandy. Yeah. Um, what is that one called? That one is actually just called Christina's World. Okay. That actually, <laughs> actually sounds more like a Disney show. Yeah. Or so, Nickelodeon. All but, right. you know, art is art. It's not up to us to decide. It's up to the artist to decide what it is. So, mm, Okay. <laughs> so those were our art interpretations. So um, yeah, ch definitely check out those on Instagram. I think you did a wonderful job, Melissa, describing oh. the paintings to me. Oh, you have one more? Uh, you did too. Didn't I send oh. you one more or no? Oh, you did. Uh, you okay. do have, I do have one more. That was my favorite one. <laughs> okay, perfect. Mandy, what did I send you? Okay. So the last one you sent me, it's like a painted face and it looks like it has an a side eye, right? So you could see the eye literally going to the side of the face, maybe possibly to look at something that's they don't really want to see. So they're looking sideways. Ooh, okay. That's what it seems like to me. So okay. <laughs> I'm calling, I can't wait for this. I'm calling this one. I know you didn't bring corn nuts into this hotel room. <laughs> <laughs> okay, that wins. That wins. And that's exactly it. Man, this is like flashbacks for me. <laughs> oh, oh, I love this. My gosh. That's great. It's actually called Marie something with a garland. I'm not even going to pronounce her oh. last name. I don't know it. But yeah, that's so good. I Yeah. Oh, perfect. <laughs> I can't see anything different. Guess what, guys? By the end of the episode, turns out we love art and we appreciate it just on our own terms and basically making fun of the things we see. Oh, that was so perfect. I love that, actually. That was actually really fun, yeah. <laughs> it was. All right, guys. So that was the episode for this week. Um, we'll be back next week. Same time, same place, new story. Melissa, do you have anything new out this week? Oh, yeah. Actually, um, Criminality, new episode on Tori Spelling. Ooh. And it's actually super fun. And there's even like a small music video she did with her husband that's so awkward that I included in there. So if you want to check that out, that would be um, – it's really a lot of fun. Yeah, you'd enjoy that. Awesome. All right, guys. So I guess we will see you next week. See you later, Rick. Bye-bye, <laughs> <laughs> Randy. <laughs> Thanks so much for listening to the Moms and Murder podcast. Make sure to check back with us next week for a new episode. You can also find us at momsandmurder.com where you can connect with us via social media. Please make sure you subscribe and give us five stars because giving us four stars would be a crime. Thanks so much. Mmm, the first taste of rare bourbon you finally got your hands on. 
That's nice. At Caskers.com, we make this experience easy. Caskers is a one-stop spirit curator with an impressive selection of exclusive sought-after rare and household names in the realm of premium spirits and champagne. Discover the top flavors of the year now by going to Caskers.com and using code WELCOME10 for $10 off your first purchase. Get $10 off your first purchase with code WELCOME10 at Caskers.com.